Welcome to the Wrigley's Education Team podcast with Tim Wrigley and Chris Billington. We're both partners in the Wrigley's Education Team, working with all varieties of schools and particularly academies. In this episode, we're going to look at an introduction to academy governance, some of the key principles around governance, what the Academy Trust is and the roles and responsibilities. Hi, Chris. We've obviously dealt with lots of academy conversions here at Wrigley's um, and in many of the initial conversations I have with schools and people who are looking at academy status um, and indeed those who've already converted, there seems to be quite a lot of confusion about what an academy trust is um, and the different roles in academy governance. So let's start off with the academy trust itself. What is it? Uh, the Academy Trust is a charitable company limited by guarantee. Um, it has actually exempt charity status. Uh, now, that may well be uh, meaningless uh, to many people. Um, a company is simply uh, a legal entity. It's a creation of uh, a statute. Um, and the intention is to create a, a separate legal identity, a separate legal personality, um, separate to the individuals who are involved in its management and its operation. Uh, The reason for that is historic in terms of um, a lot of the companies that um, used to trade around the world, uh, they carry large risk and the idea was about protecting uh, the people who were supporting that. but essentially, it's a company by guarantee. Um, there are two principal forms of companies uh, available today: company limited by share, company limited by guarantee. Uh, they're much of a same entity. It's normal within the uh, charity and voluntary sector for company limited by guarantee to be used because there then uh, is a separation from uh, what is felt to be ownership through shares, uh, ownership of the company and uh, its assets. Uh, it's important for academy trusts that they have this um, status as uh, voluntary organisations, charitable organisations, and that the focus is on what they do, the education that they deliver, rather than uh, the creation of profit, uh, for that profit to be distributed to the shareholders. Um, in terms of charity status, uh, that simply means that it is Uh, an entity that satisfies the rules as to what can be a charity. Um, There are certain obligations that come uh, with that. Um, But it's an exempt charity, which means that uh, whilst uh, the Academy Trust is subject to charity law, it doesn't have to register with the Charity Commission. Its principal regulator is the Secretary of State for Education, who has uh, full authority over what academies do under the Academies Acts. I see then. Um, so you say that's a, the Academy Trust Company is a separate legal person, separate legal entity. Is that the same as with a maintained school then? Uh, maintained schools, uh, yes, have uh, corporate status, but it's created under the Education Acts. Uh, in essence, the Education Acts say that the governing body of a school is a legal entity in its own right and it's managed by the governors. Um, When a school enters into contracts, it's the governing body that enters into those contracts. The governing body owns the assets on behalf of the uh, the school. And the uh, corporate status of the governing body means that the governors are, again, protected uh, in a similar way to the members of a a company are protected against 
um, any liabilities that might arise um, in the ordinary course of the the school undertaking its its business. Uh, so very similar, but but different legal structures. Hmm. Well, I note that you said there that the uh, the governing body. Um, enters into the contracts uh, and owns the assets and so forth, and the Academy Trust does. Is it not the school that owns these things? Well, this is uh, a, a nuance that I think uh, many uh, involved in school leadership uh, overlook. Um, it is the governing body or the Academy Trust as the legal entity. That's the party that should be signing up to contracts. If, for example, a head teacher decides to sign up to a contract, um, and the company name or the governing body name isn't on that contract, the question then arises whether or not the contract is one that the head teacher has entered into personally and therefore would have a personal liability. There's a number of disclosure requirements that exist for companies which try to make it clear to uh, others who, who are contracting with the company exactly who they're contracting with, try and ensure that that limited liability status, that protection for the people involved in the management and running of uh, the Academy Trust or, or the school, um, uh, they retain that uh, protection through proper disclosure of the legal entity. All oh, right, okay, well thanks for clearing that up, that's really helpful. Um, it sounds like it's very important to get that right as well, mm, something, something to remember. Um, so in relation to the Academy Trust then, who are the key decision makers? Um, this stems from the, uh, the, the makeup of the company itself. I'm afraid companies have uh, what's referred to as a two-tier level of governance. It has members, it has directors. Uh, with a charity, the directors are often or usually referred to as trustees. Uh, and one of the difficulties that we've had with the uh, Academy programme is that certainly in the early stages, a lot of the uh, terms have been used interchangeably. Um, this is now settling, um, but by way of example, early um, early template documents, the Memorandum of Articles Association for the Academy Trust would refer to governors, would refer to directors, would refer to trustees. Um, they're not quite the same, uh, particularly when you get into a multi-academy trust model, but things are now settling. We're getting a little bit more consistency, uh, which helps, uh, but uh, those involved with academies still need to understand uh, the fundamental differences between the members um, and the trustees and in multi-academy trust settings what are now referred to as the local governors. I see. Um, so just to recap then, directors and trustees in multi-academy trusts, that's the same thing and that's separate from members? Yes indeed. Two-tier level of governance. Okay, great. Um, so, so what is the role of a of a trustee in the in the academy trust? Uh, trustees are those who have overall control and management of the activities of the academy trust. Um, they have three key functions. Uh, these are essentially to ensure uh, clarity of vision, ethos, and a strategic direction. Um, they hold the senior executive to account for the performance of the Academy Trust and they are required to oversee uh, the financial uh, performance of the Academy Trust. They have those three fundamental responsibilities. Um, they also have a number of uh, duties under statute, under the Companies Act. Uh, there are various um, uh, 
duties that the directors, trustees of an academy trust have to comply with. Now these won't be unfamiliar with governors uh, in a maintained school uh, because they're all based on the same principles. Uh, it's just that with companies there's been a codification. Um, the key duties are to act within their powers, so in accordance with their, their constitution, uh, to promote the success of the, uh, the Academy Trust, uh, to exercise independent judgment, reasonable care, skill, diligence, uh, and to avoid conflicts of interest. Now, there's a couple of others, but those are the key ones, the key duties of um, an Academy Director. But essentially, the Academy Directors direct. I see. Well, that makes sense. And as you say, that sounds familiar from um, a maintained school governor's perspective. Um, so in that case, what's the role of a member? What do, what do members do? Um, some would say not a lot. Um, the role of members is something that challenges all charities, not just academy trusts, um, because very often uh, the, the key decision maker is the director, the trustee, and members and directors can be the same people. They just have different functions. Uh, and those functions are set out in the Memorandum and Article of Association. That's the constitution of the Academy Trust. Um, within the Memorandum and Article of Association, uh, the key role of the members will be to hold the directors or trustees to account and uh, to control the constitution. Uh, there are certain matters that only members can determine, so any changes to the constitution is a member's matter. For Academy Trust, the key role of the member is, more often than not, the appointment or removal of the Academy Trustees. I see. Well, that's again, that's very helpful to understand that in a bit more detail. Um, so that's the members and, and trustees of the uh, of the Melbourne Academy Trust. How about the the local governors, the local governing body that you mm. mentioned? Well, in a multi Academy Trust, there's often then that third uh, tier of governance, uh, which is the local governing bodies. Um, the local governors are the members of that local governing body, and in a constitutional uh, uh, context, the local governing body sits as a subcommittee of the Academy Trust Board of Trustees, and they derive all of their powers from um, those trustees. So the trustees will delegate powers to the local governing body, uh, usually through the scheme of delegation, and that will define what the local governing body can do. That will define what the role of the local governors are. I see. Um, so from what you've said there, it's the Academy Trust who, trustees, sorry, who have the the power, if you like, in order to set up the constitution and, and give governors powers rather than rather than the other way around. Yes, and I think it, it's important also just to bear in mind um, when you're talking about the Academy Trust, uh, when you're talking about the Board of Trustees, uh, very often it's presented in a them and us kind of um, context. Uh, within the Academy Trust it's all one and the same. Again, it comes back to that point uh, we spoke about a little earlier, which is that the Academy Trust is the legal entity. The school is simply part of the Academy Trust. It's not separate. It's very much an integral part. Um, and whether you have a 
a local governing body or an academy council, a local governing council, an advisory board, um, all of its role, functions and its existence is defined within the scheme of delegation uh, and that derives from the uh, board of trustees. Okay, can you tell me a bit more about the, the purpose of the scheme of delegation and what we might expect to see in there? Um, well, the scheme of delegation is much more than just um, financial delegations, who can sign off on, on, on what level of payment. It is very much about um, filling in the gaps uh, in terms of the, uh, the constitutional framework. As I say, the Memorandum and Article of Association is a template document. Um, it has quite wide-reaching effect, um, but it's, it is just a framework, and the detail needs to be fleshed out uh, by those who are effectively involved in the managing and uh, and control of the Academy Trust. Now that's a dialogue that will take place between those setting up the Academy Trust. But where uh, schools are concerned about protecting uh, the vision, uh, ethos and values of their particular school, the scheme of delegation is where you will find that recorded, more often than not. So the scheme of delegation has a number of different sections. It will give an introduction to what the Academy Trust is in terms of what its purpose uh, is and how it intends to achieve uh, that, uh, that purpose. Um, but its main function is to record the arrangements that exist between the Trust Board and the local governing body. Um, and schemes of delegations come in all shapes, all sizes. Um, there is no fixed template and this is something that allows an academy trust uh, complete flexibility about the way in which it operates internally. You can have uh, those academy trusts at one end of the spectrum that are very rigid, very controlling, and at the other end of the spectrum that are very loose collaborations. Um, and it follows that you have those academy trusts that really don't delegate any powers or responsibilities to a local level, to those that will delegate practically everything, and in some cases too much uh, delegation from the board to the local governing body, forgetting that the trustees retain that ultimate responsibility for those three key functions that I mentioned. Well this all sounds very important, are there any particular DFE requirements for what goes in the scheme of delegation then? No, uh, it's not even a document that uh, DfE insist on seeing uh, prior to schools converting. Uh, they tell uh, schools that they have to have one, and indeed under the Academy's financial handbook there is reference to uh, academies having a scheme of delegation in place. Oh, right, so what happens if you don't? Um, in terms of any intervention by the EFA, uh, very little, but in terms of uh, the potential for confusion, um, it's quite significant. As I say, the schema delegation is defined to be that document that uh, you can refer to when you want to understand what the role of a particular governing body is. If a school has converted um, as a sponsored academy, uh, is its governing body, is its local governing body then going to have full freedom? Is it going to have all the powers that it would otherwise have had as a governing body of a maintained school? Or is it going to be restricted in certain ways? That's recorded within the, the scheme of delegation. Right, yeah, it sounds uh, very important to have that in place uh, and understand it and be constantly referring to it as well. 
Um, it's, it should also be seen as a, a living document. Um, it will evolve as the relationships within the Academy Trust evolve. Um, it shouldn't be seen as a rigid document used to um, beat the local governing body around the head with. It, it's an uh, ongoing relationship. I see, right. Um, so we've covered there that Academy Trusts are charities. Um, they are companies by the nature of their legal structure. Um, what is there in the wider charity sector that can help Academy Trusts and, and their trustees uh, understand the changes that, that happen when they become academies and the new governance model uh, that they're going to need to become familiar with? Well, the starting point, as I mentioned, is that uh, the role of a trustee within an Academy Trust is not significantly different from the role of a governor in a maintained school. So, so much will be familiar. Um, unfortunately, part of the question there is whether or not uh, the governors have truly understood and operated to the full extent of their obligations and responsibilities. Um, that reflects the particular governance in a particular school. Um, so Academy Trust can draw from uh, governance guidance that's very much already available to maintain schools. Uh, DfE Governor's Handbook, for example, uh, recently updated, uh, which is, is very clearly stated to apply as much to Academy uh, trustees as it is uh, to uh, the governors of a maintained school. Uh, I've already mentioned that the Academy's Financial Handbook um, also is, uh, is relevant, and indeed it has a very short but useful summary of the role of the members and the role of the directors. Um, it then goes on to set out a number of um, mandatory obligations which Academy Trusts have to comply with, but those tend uh, more towards the operational rather than uh, governance aspects. Um, there is within the wider charity sector obviously guidance that's available from the Charity Commission um, and we will always refer Academy trustees to uh, the Charity Commission publications, particularly uh, CC3, the Essential Trustee, which should be part of any Academy Trust's induction pack for, uh, for new trustees. There's also a very good document uh, available in the sector uh, referred to as the um, uh, Good Governance Code of Conduct. Um, it is charity sector guidance uh, published by some of the leading sector organisations such as uh, uh, the National Association of Chief Executives uh, and also uh, National Council of Voluntary Organisations. Uh, so there is a lot of guidance out there um, but again it's important to remember that other than the core principles of uh, governance the way in which a particular Academy Trust works and the relationships that exist are very much for that Academy Trust to define itself. Okay, thanks. It sounds like there's some good, helpful guidance out there um, for trustees then. Um, where does staff fit in to the governance arrangements? Um, there is a separation between governance and operation, um, and often it's a, it's a, it's a very difficult line uh, to define. Uh, normally it's uh, somewhere in the relationship between the chair of trustees and uh, the chief executive of the Academy Trust uh, if, uh, if the Academy Trust has a chief executive or uh, the other uh, senior uh, officials or accounting officers. Um, normally uh, you would not expect uh, executive or operational staff to be involved in governance. 
Um, but uh, there are decision-making powers that are delegated from the Trust Board uh, to the Chief Executive in particular, uh, who will have the role um, of uh, managing staff, appointing staff, and effectively uh, running the school on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, there are also uh, provisions within uh, the Memorandum and Article of Association of the Academy Trust, its constitution, uh, which allow for uh, staff trustees to be appointed. Um, there are certain restrictions that uh, apply to staff trustees, uh, in particular around conflicts of interest, uh, but it, it enables staff uh, to uh, have a stakeholder interest in uh, the governance that goes on with their Academy Trust and very much reflects uh, the similar role that staff have always had uh, in terms of their ability to appoint staff governors to a to the governing body of a, a maintained school. Um. Thanks for that. Um, when we first started doing academy conversions under the Academies Act 2010, there were there were a lot of staff trustees. It was quite quite normal, and I think there was a requirement even to have some staff trustees. How and why has that changed over the years? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, when academy trusts were first being created, um, perhaps it was that DfE um, didn't give too much forward thought uh, to the role of staff, uh, but staff were uh, very much able to become members of the uh, academy trust and to become trustees uh, of the academy trust. Um, indeed, the chief executive was ex officio a trustee. Uh, as the uh, academy programme has developed, and perhaps in response to some of the excesses of individuals uh, and some of the financial irregularities that have been uh, disclosed in academy trusts, uh, a more restricted view is taken. Uh, and essentially the position of DfE is that since the members are supposed to uh, review and uh, keep under scrutiny the directors, uh, the trustees, and the trustees are supposed to scrutinise and keep under review uh, the local governing bodies uh, and the chief executive. Um, it kind of makes a nonsense if staff are members checking on the trustees, checking on the staff, uh, and therefore separation uh, of those roles to ensure uh, the less likelihood that there would be conflicts of interest. Uh, now uh, leads the DfE policy that uh, staff shall not be members of the Academy Trust. Um, the appointment of the Chief Executive as a trustee is optional uh, and is a matter to be determined by the members. And whilst uh, staff trustees are not prohibited, um, the provisions within the Articles Memorandum that used to provide for their appointment have been removed so that their appointment now is very much at the discretion of the members, uh, the members exercising uh, their powers uh, to appoint and remove directors. Chris, thanks for that. That's a helpful oversight and an introduction to some of the key principles of academy governance, um, looking at setting up the trust, who the key decision makers are and what the various roles are within it. It's obviously a big topic. I think it's fair to say that it's uh, an introduction scratching the surface um, and there's plenty more guidance that you've kindly referred us to uh, available for
finding out a lot more about it in a lot more detail. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, bring Tim Wrigley on 0113-204-5743 or Chris Billington on 0113-204-5734. Alternatively, you can visit wrigleys.co.uk where you'll find more information and our contact email addresses. Thanks again.